over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Open your Bibles to the book of Judges, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. You've gone too far if you came to the little book of Ruth. The first five books are the Pentateuch. It is one corpus of literature. Think of it as not five books, but one piece of literature. And then we started Joshua, Judges, and Ruth are the historical books. So we've gone from a foundation of these first five, the Pentateuch, and now we're looking at the history. The transition uh, into the book of Joshua and Judges is a tectonic shift in the storyline. And these are often called the darkest days of Israel, the book of Judges, a generation who knows not God. Uh, Before we dive into the survey, I want to take one step kind of back and sideways and talk a little bit about the Old Testament. And I want you to put your thinking cap on on when we're reading the Old Testament, there's some things to keep in mind. This isn't exhaustive. This is just to encourage you in your own processing. When you read the Old Testament, first of all, approach the Old Testament as the very Word of God. This is not a record of human speculation. It's not simply a narrative. Uh, words in preaching and, uh, and blogs and posts and social media take on a life of their own. And narrative is sort of the, it's a great word, but it can be overused. Just like the word story can be overused. And what I mean by that is it's not just a story. It's not just a narrative. It's the very word of God. God is speaking. As uh, Dr. Hendricks off said, this is not what God would say if he was here. This is what God is saying because he is here. Uh, That in mind, approaching the Old Testament, secondly, as living history and applicable to every generation. So while we're reading historical stories and accounts, uh, it seems so distant. Well, that doesn't apply to us. That is the goal of the Bible student. That is the, the passion of a Bible reader. I don't understand what don't boil a kid in his mother's milk means, But if I go back to the context of what God was establishing, I learned principles and applications for today that are still relevant, still true. You've heard me say it many, many times. Context is critical. What was the context? What was being written at the time? Who was the intended audience? How did they interpret it? We can't know all this perfectly, but we can learn a lot if we put on our thinking caps just a little. And it's still God's truth, and how to apply it to our lives is the great challenge. Thirdly, approaching the Old Testament as God's personal self-revelation. And and the reason I say this in some encumbering words, personal self-revelation, he's telling us who he is. The, The story, the narrative isn't just a bedtime story. God is revealing who he is through these records, through these accounts, through these many different authors and the way they had style in their writing, albeit inspired. They still had a personality. They still had vocabulary that was unique to them, let's say. And so there is a story here of God revealing himself to mankind. When 
you read a passage of the Bible and you don't exactly know what it means or how it applies, I, I do this in my own study, I ask the question, what's the one or two characteristics about God I'm learning from this, this chapter? If, nothing, if I can't find anything else that seems applicable, what is the Bible telling me about God's character, who he is, how he behaves, what he does? Gracious, patient, justifying, righteous, good, holy, kind. I'm looking for, that's the highest level. What characteristics of God are we looking for in the scripture? And fourth, the Old Testament is best understood from a clear Christology. We need to understand the person and work of Jesus Christ as the Godhead three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus eternally exists. Just when he was born of a baby, he comes on the scene, quote unquote, in a new way as an incarnate baby, but he always existed. He takes on the form of a man born of a virgin and the life he lives Truly, we're only getting three years and change because the, the childhood of Jesus is a very truncated part of our Gospels. It's a lot of mystery there, but the three years he's in public ministry, we call it, kind of euphemistically, public ministry, uh, when he's out and about, when he's on the Sea of Galilee, when he's, he's teaching the Beatitudes, casting out demons, the Pool of Bethesda, when he's doing the work, the three-year time frame, when he's alive, then crucified, dies, buries, resurrected. So that little increment of time in the grand scheme of things, we have to look to the, to the Bible through the lens of Jesus. That's doing Christology. And this is a lost art in many uh, churches. And that's why I so commend you in Precept or BSF or Community Bible Study, because you're continuing to saturate your thinking with this, these concepts. And Christology is the lens that helps us understand it, the Christology is the New Testament interpretation of the old. Christology is the New Testament perspective of the old. Now, on the average, the Old Testament is neither well-read nor well-known. It can be complicated. It can be cloudy at times. It can be confusing at times. It's one of these things we kind of go, go, oh, what in the world does this mean? It can be boring at times. How many of us can't wait to read a genealogy when we're reading a Bible program? And we can't even pronounce the names, much less read, you know, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. Uh, so let's just acknowledge it's a, it's a bit of a dusty book. God's not mad when you say, I don't like that book. Um, that said, with a little bit of, of uh, energy and time and a couple of resources, it's amazing what you can find even in a genealogical record. It's amazing what you can find if you're a person who likes geography. It'll change the whole Bible if you study passages from what's happening geographically. And reading through Judges, I was reminded of just being in Israel a few weeks ago and going back in a few weeks of all the things that transpired in, the, in Megiddo and the valley and how the judges were there as well. And there's just a little tiny piece of real estate and it just, it's sort of like layer upon layer upon layer. So if you like geology and geography and history, you can look at the Bible through that lens. It's an inexhaustible book in that regard. Now, I raised these because, and you may or may not be aware of this, and it, it doesn't matter if you're intricately involved in these things or not, but there's a trend right now uh, with some very prominent Bible teacher voices that are sort of putting the Old Testament on the side. I'll just say it diplomatically. It's not, you don't need to really read it. It's not that important. We don't need it anymore. And I know some of these people. One of them is a classmate of mine. He's got a huge global voice. He's a friend. He's a brother. I just disagree. And even though he might be saying things that are okay, the way those sound bites are taken out, it sounds really egregious. 
And that's why one of the reasons I want to review these four pieces, this is the very word of God. It might be complicated, it might be boring, it might be cloudy, it might be a long time ago, that doesn't lessen the reality that God has spoken. And he didn't sputter when he spoke to us. Some good common sense goes a long way. I, I, I don't know who the original author or, or, or person who said it, and there's a few iterations of it, but it's something to, along the lines of, if the plain sense makes common sense, it's foolish sense to seek another sense. If the plain sense makes common sense, it's foolish sense to seek another sense. And when you're reading the Bible, if the plain sense is common sense, I mean, use the brain God gave you. When you became a Christian, it didn't turn to jello. In fact, now it can see and understand things that before were just words on paper. So uh, just encourage you, don't let the world teach theology, don't let trends, and don't even let individually powerful pastors or authors that you love shift your thinking technology you know, tectonically, you're a critical thinker. And last point I want to make on this, remember uh, Paul's beginning of Corinth when he's writing them, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. Has Christ been divided? No. You could fill in the names, and I won't use names, of preachers and people that you admire. I I like so-and-so, I like so-and-so. What a great warning. Paul even puts his own name in there. Has Christ been divided? There's no teacher on the platform, on the days, circuit speaker, man or woman who's inerrant. They're just not there. There's one of them, as he was Jesus. And so we're looking through flawed eyes, flawed lenses, flawed presuppositions. I'm just going to, you know, beat this until I die. You can trust God at his word. Even when it's a little complicated, even when it's a little murky, that's a reflection on what we do or don't know, not on whether the word is wrong. And this is what we call doing theology, thinking critically. Well, let's jump to the book a little bit and uh, get a little high view of the book of Judges. The author, we're not sure. It's one of a handful we don't know. It could be Samuel or one of his contemporaries. The time span of the book is striking. It's about 350 to 410 years, give or take. Now, I was thinking about this this week, and you think, okay, let's just go low. Let's go 300 years. America on July 4th, 2019, this year, will be 243 years old. Think of the amount of history in 243 years in this country. Could you comprise it in how many pages of your Bible called the book of Judges in 21 chapters? That's what you're reading. So we, we, we skim through these things and they're complicated and dusty. How could you compress, let's just say I gave you 50 pages to write the entire history of the United States from 1776 to 2019. What would you include? How would you even begin? Would you just do a bunch of bullets? You know, the Continental Congress, War of Independence, you know, First Civil War. I mean, where would you start and stop? Vietnam, World War II, uh, you know, key presidents. Goodness gracious, how would you even begin to wrap your arms around it? So when you read this little book called Judges, don't miss the the, this amazing amount of literature, uh, uh, time that's covered in this little piece of literature. And to me, to me that was, you know, one of the many ahas. Um, the transition from the book of jo- Joshua to the book of Judges is just terrible. It's just terrible. Joshua ends on a high note. We're going to, you know, as for me and my house, we're going to take the land. Joshua's been faithful. The baton's been passed. We're going to do this right. All the people are in agreement. And in Judges 1-1, we read the death spiral. 
and the epitaph of the book, which occurs a number of times in Judges 21-25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What a chilling epitaph to put at the last stroke of the book of Judges. Everybody's doing what they want. There's no leader, there's no king. When I taught the book of Judges, I've done it on two occasions. I started it with Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Rule number one, if you're an egg, don't sit on a wall. All the little storybooks depict him on this precipice and he falls. What's the little rhyme telling us? All the resources, all the king's horses, the strength of the monarchy, all the king's men, all the resources, couldn't put Humpty together again. Many of the Puritan influences of these nursery rhymes and the way they taught alphabets were to teach the Bible alongside. So Humpty Dumpty is a great depiction of the book of Judges because once it was broken and the resources that were brought to bear were insufficient, but when Adam fell, he fell far. And when the book of Judges begins, it continues that fall. A chilling parallel to our country and a chilling parallel to Christians in our country and a chilling parallel to Christians in the world. America is a puny, young, not even adolescent. We're probably still in the toddler stage historically. And yet think of how powerful we became or we become or we are depending on your perspective and your preference. And yet in the blink of an eye, that can change. And it certainly did for Israel on numerous occasions. The title of the book, Judges, comes from the Hebrew word shofat. Shofarim is the word. It's found about 30 times in the book. And we've got to make a differentiation here because when we think of the book of Judges, we think of the word Judges, we think of a man or woman in a robe or we think of a judicial branch of the government, if you know a little bit of your American history. So we think of a judicial person who's sitting making a judgment. And that certainly could be a minor function of the judge, but that is not what the word meant in this context. The word is a deliverer. Technically, he or one occasion she is a military deliverer. In fact, it wouldn't be a bad thing to write in your Bible on the the front page of Judges, these were military deliverers. It's better to think of them as men and women in uniform than to think of them as a person in a robe because that's what they do. God selects a person and they are to deliver Israel, not through a judicial process, through going into battle. So think of the period of Judges with a sword. Think of it with you know, armies coming together, people fighting other people groups. That's much more accurate. In the Old Testament, uh, judges wielded this military authority and power. Let me just read a few passages, uh, a few verses from Judges 2 to set the scene a little bit. Judges 2, beginning in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. You see the military aspect, the fighting aspect? Yet they did not listen to their judges. For they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord 
was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. And I would commend you to read all of chapter 2. It gives us a a sort of a high overview of this 350-plus year time span of what's going on in the larger narrative, larger storyline. Oh, by the way, and we'll look at this next Sunday, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 begins with, now it came about in the days, literally in Hebrew, it would say, when the judges were judging, that there was a famine in the land. So we've got this 350 to 410 year time span, and we've got this little, in the meanwhile, we've got these two players over here, three, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, and we're going to tell you a little heartwarming story that most everybody loves, the story of Ruth. And we'll talk about this more next week, God willing, but we see these darkest chapters, but there's individuals who are faithful. That's the point. In the time when the judges, were, when it couldn't get any worse, some of you know the name Corey Ten Boom. Uh, Corey uh, was part of one of the God smugglers. She was the, the hiding place story. If you're not familiar with the little book, if you've got small kids, elementary, junior high, you need to read the hiding place to your kids. There are so many great stories that are being lost. But um, her, they, their family protected Jews during the Holocaust, and they went to prison for it. All of them died except for Corey, and uh, she lived until her 80s. Uh, the last five or six years, she couldn't speak, but had an incredible ministry. But Corey was sort of revered, obviously, uh, for her faith. But she would tell America, she would pray for the church's persecution in America because they were too fat and and lazy. You got to weed out the ranks, she would say. We don't like prayers like that. We want prosperity and health, not persecution. So it, you know, think of this in a bigger perspective than our little puny view of history and think this is what happens in these time periods where God is going to do things. And oh, by the way, here's a faithful man and a faithful woman. Here's a faithful kinsman redeemer who takes care of his own. He didn't have to, but he chose to. And so we get these insights through scripture. Later on when we have the monarchy, so we have the period of the judges during this history, we're going to have a monarchy. Israel's going to want a king. Who was supposed to be Israel's king? God, Yahweh Elohim. No, we want to be like other nations. Samuel becomes the prophet that interfaces, and we'll look at those when we look at the the kingly records. And so when Samuel comes along, he says, the thing you've asked is evil, but God's going to let you have it. And so then they get Saul, and then things start to spiral out. And the monarchy will be Saul, and then David, and later it'll be a divided kingdom, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Listen to 2 Samuel 7, verse 11. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. He's going all the way back in time to this book. Even when I gave judges over my people, I will give you rest from all my enemies. And it goes on, you failed. Second Kings 23, toward the end of all the kingly records, surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. In the divided kingdom, they'd forgotten the most important holiday, Passover. Now, there's a lot of reasons why they couldn't practice Passover, but the point being, America's destroyed. You're all going to be exiles. You're going to go live in you know, Belize or Mexico or Australia or Europe. You're going to go find some place to live, live because America's going to be destroyed. What are you going to take away from America? Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving, I don't know. Take your poison. What are you going to take? 
bad illustration, point being, you didn't even follow Passover. This was the one thing I gave you to do in perpetuity, to teach it to your children so you don't forget. Now, when the sacrificial system is, they can't go and offer sacrifice, wouldn't a smart rabbi say, you know what, we can't go do that, but we can still celebrate Passover. We can still read it. We can still review it. We can still teach our children, which is what he told us to do. Never forget. And all the way in the divided monarchy, we're reading from the days when the judges judged Israel, nor and the kings of Israel and Judah. Passover hadn't been celebrated. Again, oversimplistic perhaps, but trying to make the point, this is a time period 350 to 410 years that sets the stage for a long time. And it's not going to get better for a long, long time, not in those people's lifetimes. You see the little meme running around? Talk about time and perspective. A little meme someone sent me the other day. It said um, uh, it's going to take between 75 and 150 years to restore Notre Dame. Only Keith Richards will be alive. Uh, Time is, uh, it moves on. Time moves on. And we are so focused on the here and now at this bigger thing that God is up to. Well, let's think a little bit more about time setting in the background. The book of Judges, again, covers this swath. The, the beginning of the book is land yet to be conquered. The, a lot of the land had not been occupied yet. And so the job is going to be the tribal allotments are going to go in and take over their portion that God had given them. And it's going to braid down very quickly when they start marching in to the land that God is giving them. And when they follow God, they're going to succeed. When they don't follow God, they're going to be defeated. And it's just paint by numbers. The political and spiritual turmoil erodes. They abandon following God. Uh, sin uh, is a cycle. They're unstable at times. But there's also a moral and spiritual disaster happening along with the political and warfare disaster. Um, Judges is, in a way, the heroic age. So if you're a fan of uh, the Braveheart kind of movies, Kingdom of God kind of movies, there is a heroic nature even in the midst of this corrupt situation. And we read about some of these judges that did pretty well. They're divinely appointed leaders. They didn't vote themselves into office. And they are to save the day. But what happens in the book, and what most people miss, It starts out nationalistic. It starts out tribal. We're going to deliver so Israel can succeed. But by the time we get to the latter judges, it's personal vendetta. And we're going to look at Samson at the end of the message. It's no longer the country, we would say, fighting for America, fighting for freedom. Now it's a personal issue. And the way the story changes from delivering God's people to just being, I'm going to do what I want the way I want it. And that's why the epitaph is so chilling, and we'll look at that in a few minutes. There are seven cycles of sin, and I tried to import a um, chart on this, and it didn't work, so we had to do it uh, a little bit. It's not as easy to see, but let me try to explain it. The references on the screen, Judges 2.11, 3.7, 3.12, 4.1, 6.1, and 13.1. Those are the seven cycles, all right? What's happening in those cycles, and you can look at them, and I'm not very good at memnonics, but um, you, you can use the word S's or R's. In those cycles, what we see is sin, then servitude, then supplication, then salvation, and then silence. Or, same ideas, people rebel, 
Retribution happens to them. God uses the Canaanites to judge them. God uses the enemy to judge them. Then they repent. They cry out. They complain. They cry out to the Lord. And then God restores them to a judge. And then there's a period of rest. Okay? So the, the seven cycles are not those words. The seven cycles are those, does that make sense? Are those sections in Judges. And they're very easy to pick out. Judges 2, 1, 2, 11, 3, 7, 3, 12, 4, 1, 6, 1. 10, 6, and 13, 1. So those are the cycles. Everybody got those who wants to capture them? All right, let's move on. Next slide, please, Clay. Now here, here's a list of the judges, and it may be a bit hard to see because they're a little, a little small. But let me, and you don't need to know all. I'm just going to show you them and give you a picture of what's happening here. Now, there's a debate on the number of judges. Some say 12, some say 13, some say more. Those who are 12 or 13 is the right number. Those who say more, you know, maybe they're right. Um, but these, the text talks about them being appointed by God, that God comes and visits them or tells them to do something. You'll notice in the middle we have um, Abimelech. And the reason Abimelech is grayed out is there's not a text that says uh, he was appointed as a judge, but he does act as a judge. So that's why some lists will say there's 12 versus 13. Uh, if you're a numbers person, you might like the number 12, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, etc., etc. I don't go that far, but if that makes you happy, knock yourself out. Um, each of these judges is chosen by God, Othniel, uh, Ehud, and again, if you've got, you got boys, if you've got sons that are like third, fourth grade and up, you need to read them the story of Eglon and Ehud in, in Judges 3. It is one of the best boy stories in the Bible. And uh, you know, the, the Eglon is this huge fat king. And Ehud goes in and kills him. And it's a great boy story. All boys love it. And it's kind of gross. And so boys love gross, right? So it's a good thing to teach your sons. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the story of Deborah. She's the only female judge. Man, has this been debated over the decades. How can you have a woman judge? Well, one observation is everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, and the men are leading. And there's a guy named Barak who's supposed to be doing this and Deborah calls him up by the nape of his neck and he don't want to do it without her. It's a great prophecy. And Deborah says, summarily paraphrasing Michael paraphrase, okay, I'll go with you, but the record will show a woman won this war, not you. That's a loose paraphrase. And then it's one of the most rich ironies in all the book of Judges because not only does Deborah lead and Barak's kind of, I see him like four steps behind her metaphorically, who kills Sisera? You remember your Bible? Who kills Sisera? A woman named Jael. How'd she do it? With a tent peg. She drove it to the guy's temple into the ground with a hammer. And they celebrate Jael. And you read Deborah's song. I mean, think about singing this song. It's like a bloody gruesome story. He killed the guy. She knocked. I mean, it's a great song. This is the judge's record of what a woman did to the king Sisera. And so the slap to Barak was, you weren't doing what God wanted you to do. Okay, I'll go with you. I'll hold your hand. Come on, honey. Again, I'm overstating the case. But there is a great deal of debate about whether Deborah was judging because men had failed or indeed did God select her as a judge. I have no problem with either argument. The point is, you don't want women doing this in antiquity. This was a man's job. A man wasn't doing it, so women stepped up. May I call upon the men. By the time we get to Gideon, which we 
we won't look at his story, but Gideon is also one of these one, sort of a one-man machines. Let me just say one thing about Gideon. Let's do this because we have time. Look at Judges chapter 6. This wasn't in the script. This is where I get in trouble. Judges chapter 6. Part of this because I was just there a few weeks ago. In Herod, E-N, two words, in Herod, H-A-R-O-D, is the place. This is a place when you go to Israel, we'll take you to in Herod and say, I can't tell you exactly where uh, Gideon was, but this is the spring of Inherod. This is the only spring of Inherod, and you can't move a spring. Now, the mountains and the rocks could have shifted a bit here or there, but that spring was coming up out of the ground at some point. So you're standing on a, a green area with a spring that bubbles up to this day with lots of snails in it. Everybody's always intrigued about the snails. We're talking about Gideon, but there's snails in the water, yeah, people. Uh, that's where it happened. That's the place this storyline happens. So in Judges chapter 6, Gideon, and again, the, it's, it's a rich parody. Um, the, you see the four, this is the cycle, chapter 6. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of the Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the stronghold. By the way, if you use the New American Standard Bible, every time you read the word stronghold, it's the word metsuda. Metsuda. Stronghold in the NASB is always metsuda. Masada. David's stronghold. And some of you have been to the top of Masada. Um, verse 4, they would camp against it to destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza leaving no sustenance in Israel, no sheep, no ox, no ox. So they're, they're starving them out, what they're doing. Verse 6, Israel is brought very low. And they cried out. There's the cycle that begins. Israel cried out to the Lord on the account of Midian. The Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he's going to dispatch Gideon. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord, and this is a theophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the tree, uh, under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the men. What's a warrior doing beating out wheat in the wine press? You got to see some humor in this, guys. What is a warrior doing, and I don't want to be sexist, doing a woman's job, doing a child's job. Children shepherded sheep. Young people harvested grain. Now, the men would do the heavy lifting, as it were. Just, I mean, I sound sexist saying that. I'm sorry. Get over it. Um, But the parody is, here's a warrior beating out wheat in a wine press because there's no vineyard. It's all been decimated. It's all gone. And he's like scurrying around trying to find a little food and beating out the wheat. And you got to love the angel of the Lord's comment to him, verse 12. The Lord said, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Like I'm, I'm shining in my shoes. And some, O valiant warrior. Gideon said to him, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Typical response from everybody in the Bible. How shall I deliver Israel? Who, me? You've got to be kidding me. 
I will be with you, God's going to tell him. Fast forward to the story, and the point I wanted to bring out in the sidebar in losing my place was to say um, the story of the fleece. I'm not going to have you raise your hands, but some of us have laid a fleece out before the Lord about who I'm going to marry, or am I going to do this or do that? Does Gideon know what God's going to do with him? God tells him exactly what's going to happen. Does he lay the fleece out for new information? This is one of the reasons we misapply the Bible. We don't look at the story carefully. The fleece was to confirm what he already knew. Wet one time, dry one time. God had already told him this. So the moral of the story is you and I don't get to put a fleece out. I mean, you can if you want to, but that's not what the text is teaching. The text is teaching God was kind and merciful to a guy who was terrified. The story is so funny because later on when they're still, the fleece thing has happened, they're going to go in, they're going to take them out, they're paranoid, a uh, servant and getting climb up to a knoll overlooking and the Midianites are going, and it goes, the, a loaf of bread rolls down the hill and they go, what's this about? And a dream, that's nothing but the Lord, sword of the Lord. I mean, it's like you can't make this stuff up. The enemy is interpreting a dream that God had told Gideon. I know I'm hashing through this quickly because it wasn't on the script, but my point is simply this. When you study the Bible, be careful you don't take things out of context and say, I'm going to lay a fleece before the Lord. Now, you can say, God, will you help me make a good decision? If you want to call it a fleece, hominy, domi, lami, do what you want to do. But it's not appropriate application of these stories. Does that make sense? Okay. Where am I? I don't know where I am anymore. Having fun. Um, all right, let's move on. What now? Let me, let me go to some what now applications because this is an interesting book to figure out. How is God going to work with the disobedient people? That's the undercurrent of this whole, cha- this whole 350 plus year history. What is God going to do with the disobedient people? They're going to get in this cycle. The seven cycles illustrate. They're going to cry out to God. God's going to listen to their cry. He's going to have compassion on them. He's going to send a deliverer. A restorer is going to come in. The deliverer is going to do his or her work. They're going to be successful. They're going to have a period of rest, and they're going to fall right back in the trap over and over and over and over again. That's the story of Judges. The application becomes to you and me, what does God do with you and me when we're disobedient again and again and again and again? I know the thing to do, but I don't want to do it. I know it's wrong, but it doesn't make sense. It's striking to me how many people can be super judgmental about others' sins, yet we're, we're, we're so, the only thing you and I are consistent in is our inconsistencies. We are consistently inconsistent. We say one thing and do another, don't we? Uh, Romans 7 is one of those chapters I love to see people debate. This was Paul before he came to Christ. I go, what other chapter do we apply that metric to in the whole Bible? Because we don't like what the message is saying, that's what. It just, I mean, how can Paul the Apostle be wrestling with what he believes? Because he's a human being, not Jesus. And we get the privilege of reading the record of a guy that's conflicted. I want to do the right thing, but my flesh is weak. Who will spare me from this? And then we read Romans chapter 8, verse 1, which begins, what? Anybody know it? Therefore, there is therefore now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a perfect segue to a guy that's struggling with sin 
even the Apostle Paul. And wait, wait, you know, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I mean, we, we, to see if the plain sense makes common sense, it's foolish sense to seek another sense. Number two, how will God's people endure under his discipline? Um, I often wonder, um, when things press heavy on you and me, how do we respond? Discipline seems not to be joyful for the moment. Uh, yesterday morning we met at Wayne's, about 20 guys who were meeting the first Saturday of the month. Wayne's been gracious to open up his home. And we're studying some different things about men leading leadership and servant leadership and talking about the church and what the future of Stonebridge looks like and having a great time. And we were talking about this whole idea of, um, you know, how, how do we endure discipline? How, how do we, you know, when, when things press heavy on us, and, and um, Wayne quoted the, the section in James about um, uh, consider all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its complete or perfect result. And most people say, I should be happy when a trial comes. That ain't what that passage is saying. It's a long parenthesis. Consider it joy, brethren. Drop out that last part, to, uh, the middle part, because you'll learn endurance. When you face a trial, I ain't happy about the trial, God. But if I go through the trial faithfully, I'm going to learn endurance. And when I learn endurance, then I'm, I'm, the next time something comes around the corner, with God's kindness, we can endure this. So many of you are musicians, and you practiced for years to get to a point where it's almost automatic, right? That was a discipline process. You probably didn't like all of your childhood years. You probably hated your piano teacher, your guitar teacher, whatever, for a period of time. You probably changed. You probably quit. But it was that endurance over a lot of years. got to the point now where it's like, this is a delight. This is a delight. Because that, that trial of repetition and learning and practice and practice and practice and practice and running scales, whatever it was, over and over, built into you a, a foundation. And now you're autopilot. And it's a joy. Isn't it fun to watch a musician that doesn't have to think about what they're doing with their hands? It's just, they, and it's not because they, you know, they memorized it. Smart people can memorize stuff. You can't play just because you can memorize. There's a lot going on neurosynaptically in a man or woman who can play an instrument. That discipline of those lessons and that, we all had that one teacher that drove us nuts, Right? Probably as you got older, your hardest teacher became your best teacher. My Hebrew professor, just, I had a love-hate with a guy. I loved him to death. Man, he was so stinking hard. But he taught me Hebrew. And I can still use my Hebrew today. I'm never going to be as good as him, because that's all he does is Hebrew. He's got a brain from some Semitic world, you know. I ain't got that brain. But I can work the language. I can read it. I can work through it, because Dr. Ross beat me over the head for four years on how to study Hebrew. Discipline is not joyful. But if you endure it, it results in something. Consider all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of the faith produces endurance. So the stuff we go through with our kids, with our marriages, with divorces, with our jobs, with our money, with our health, the goal is as, as you go through, you learn something no one else can learn any other way. That's endurance. And let endurance have the result. Make sense? All right. Uh, do, how do we live faithfully in an unfaithful government? And that's one of the parts of this book that I so enjoy studying because the government is corrupt to the core. And yet you're going to see next week at the time when the judges were judging. A guy named 
Boaz is going to come along and still be faithful, um, we, we greatly underestimate the power of the individual who's faithful, and we greatly overestimate the power of a corrupt government. When people say government should, or I need a program for, or this, there's nothing new. There's nothing new. Government can't fix your problems. Government can provide an environment where hopefully people can prosper. It's the individual who makes the decision to be faithful when the government's unfaithful. It's the individual who says, I, even though the judges are judging and things are going pell-mell, I'm going to be faithful. I'm gonna, well, my relative dropped the ball. I'm going to step in and do my part. And that's what Boaz will illustrate, and that's what Boaz will be. What do we do with a generation that knows not God? And for those of us that have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, perhaps in some cases, this is our biggest fear. I can remember my parents lamenting about the world they're sending you into. The world is terrible. And I often think, you know, both of them are gone now. And I think, what would they say today if they knew what was going on in the media and culture about their great-grandchildren? Um, I mean, every generation faces it. I, we, we never think it's going to get worse, and then it does. A few things that, that I pulled from this book when I studied it a number of times is partial obedience always leads to misery. Partial obedience always leads to misery. Yeah, I can do, let's say there's 10 things I'm supposed to do right. I can do nine right, and one I choose to sin. What is the one that drives me nuts? What is the one that drives you nuts? You see, if you're, if you're being faithful in your giving, you're not, you know, if you're being faithful in your marriage, no big deal. But if, you know, if that one thing, if you're lying at work, if you're into pornography, if you're having an affair, what's the one thing that puts a knot in your stomach and guilt just shreds you? It's the one you're not doing. So partial obedience always leads to misery. Another one is teach your children well. How many of us have, we try to teach our kids, we try to love, I mean, some of you are amazing. I won't name the person, but I, Cindy and I stalked their family on Instagram. And uh, this family in the church here, they have raised their kids at home. They've got a little farm. And we just, we, we watched the, what their story is. And I go, if we had it all to do over again, I would do it like they did. I mean, their kids are out in the mud and the mud and the creek and they're bringing things home and they're bringing them back in the house and they're looking stuff up online and figuring it out and making little crafts out of what they've dug up out of the creek bottom. I mean, these kids are getting a better education than any private public or one-on-one school could give them. And I keep, we keep showing our daughter, going, hey, honey, look what this family's doing. Because <laughs> it's just a different way of thinking. How do you teach your children well? How do you teach them to love Christ when the world is going to eviscerate them for talking about God? They're going to eviscerate them if they believe in a heterosexual monogamous marriage. How do you teach them well? That's the challenge, right? Following Christ will involve risk. I like the word risk as a sometimes synonym for the word faith. Because when you trust God, you're taking a risk against trusting the norms of the world. If you're going to work within a system in the world, it's sort of A plus B equals C. It's predictable. And judges will teach us, as will the book of Ruth, um, when you trust God, it's a risk. A risk for Gideon, a risk for you know, Deborah, a risk for any of them. Uh, our greatest strength taken one step too far becomes our greatest liability. Our greatest strength taken one step too far. I, I speak for a living, and I can get in trouble with my mouth. Some of you are powerful, men and women. You take your power a little too far. 
Some of you have been very successful in your career, very wealthy, whatever. Taking that one step too far becomes your liability. We become overbearing. We use the gifting a little too far. I want to end with this story of the national deliverance to the personal deliverance. And I want us to look at the story of Samson to do that very briefly. So you can turn in your Bible to Judges chapter 12, is it? Nope, that's Jephthah. That's a great story. Uh, I'm going to kill my daughter. Boy. Let's let's pick up the story of Samson in uh, chapter 13. Try to do a quick summary of this. Samson, uh, by the way, for you Bible students, this is going to fall somewhere between 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 1 Samuel chapter 7 in the history of the storyline. And that's when the ark is taken to give you some backstory. It's a fascinating section. So uh, chapter 13 of Judges, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. There's the cycle. And 40 years they're under Philistine oppression. And then the angel of the Lord appears to uh, Manoah. And the barren story here, verse um, 4, is a little bit about the Nazarite vow kind of thing. Uh, Be careful not to eat or not to drink wine or strong drink nor eat any unclean thing. Uh, You will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor will come upon his head. He'll be a Nazarite to God, etc. Verse 6, the woman came and told her husband, saying, a man of God came to me. And his appearance was like the, the appearance of an angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he came from, etc. And Manoah, verse 8, entreated the Lord, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again. And this is, again, God's mercy. And so he listens to him. Verse 9, the angel of God came again to the woman. Not to the man, by the way. Notice the story. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. She ran and told her husband, Uh, Verse 13, the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, let the woman pay attention. (laughs) You got to see some humor in this. Listen to me, will (laughs) you? I've told you the story before. I'll tell you again. Anyway, you're not finding my humor. I'm sorry. I'll pray for you. Uh, Verse 24, she bears Samson as the son. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in Manahandan between Zorar and Eshtal. Then Samson went down to Timnah, and saw a woman of Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. The Hebrew is really truncated. It's, it's get her for me. Get her for me. The father and mother said, is there no woman among the daughters of relatives or among our, all our people that you should go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she looks good to me. And if you're old enough to remember the Samson and Delilah movie with Victor uh, Mature and uh, Eddie Lamar. Oh, Eddie Lamar. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. She's dead, no threat. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. So he tore him as one terror. Anyway, so Samson becomes this one-man machine. And you know the story. He sees, um, verse 7, he went down and talked to the woman. She looked good to Samson. Do you see the pattern? He saw, he saw, he saw. She looked. His lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life taken in the strength of this man. Verse 8, he returned later to her, turned aside to look at a carcass of a lion. 
There was a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. He scraped the honey in his hands and went on. Unclean, not supposed to do this. Doesn't tell his parents about it. Verse 9. And of course, you got the riddle. On and on the storyline goes. He saw her. He wanted her. He saw her. He wanted her. What happens to Samson in the end? His eyes are gouged out. What's the epitaph of the book? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this judge, it culminates with a graphic story. I saw her. I saw her. She looks good. Go get her. I saw. I saw. I did what I wanted to do. I saw it. I'm going to take your eyes, Samson. The literature can't be overstated. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, bulls for pride of life. Let me conclude with this. Are you serving God's purposes or your own? Because that's what the later judges end up being one-man machines, whether it's Gideon or Samson or the worst one, of course, at the end where it results in civil war. But you and I have to ask the question. We talked about this yesterday in our men's group just a little bit. Am I doing what God's purpose for my life or my purpose for my life? And that's a daily fight for all of us. Number one, are you daily spending time in the Word? This is, not, this is not rocket theology. This is You all know everything I'm going to say right now. Are you spending time in the Word? The mind of Christ has to come into our brain for us to change. There's no self-help program. There's no seminar. There's no nothing that's going to do it. You've got to be in the Word. Secondly, are you spending time in prayer? We gave you all the handbook of prayer. And by the way, we've got a new shipment in. I failed to bring them this morning. Next week, I'll have them here. If you didn't get a handbook to prayer, we'll have some for you next week. It's a, I'm not going to ask you if you do it. I'm just going to encourage you to do it. 90 days. Just five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, however much time you want. I've heard from many of you how it's changed your perspective on prayer. A friend of mine was traveling the other day, and he on social media, he posted his, his little uh, desk in the hotel with his handbook of prayer. I'm so glad he took it with him. I'm, I'm working through it. I'm enjoying it. It's teaching me to pray better and much more intelligently. Third, are you growing as a disciple and making disciples? When we began uh, Stonebridge, we said we wanted to have biblical exposition. We wanted to talk about prayer in more depth, and we wanted to make disciples. Whatever order you want to do it. And that's what we're going to bring home again and again and again. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.